you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, please, once again to Romans 9. The ninth chapter of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you today. It's such a joy to see uh, loved ones uh, that I've known for many years. It's also a real delight to see so many that I don't know uh, new faces here. It's a real encouragement to see a full sanctuary. Romans 9 is the fourth. Let's back up into the latter portion of Romans 8. And I'd like to read, beginning at verse 28, uh, down through verse 31, and then skip down into verses 37 through 39. Romans 8, beginning at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then skipping down to verse 37. For I am, excuse me, know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 9, perhaps more clearly, perhaps more powerfully than any other one passage in the Bible, sets forth the truth of election. Election means selecting or choosing. Selecting or choosing. The Bible teaches that God, before he created the world, selected those from the human race that he would redeem in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God chose those beforehand whom he would call, justify, and glorify in union with Christ. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith states it in this way, in its chapter on God's decree, chapter 3. This is from paragraph 3. The confession says this, By God's decree, and for the demonstration of His glory, some human beings and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glorious grace. Others are left to live in their sin, 
leading to their just condemnation in the praise of his glorious justice. And when the Apostle Paul's majestic uh, exposition of the gospel as it's set forth so systematically here in his epistle to the Romans, uh, what our confession calls the high mystery of predestination is not introduced uh, in chapter 9. It's introduced back in chapter 8, uh, verses 29 and 30 of Romans 8 set forth what is sometimes been described as the golden chain of salvation. Saving blessings are identified in those verses as inseparable links in a chain that is anchored in eternity past and extends all the way into eternity future. And the anchor rooted in eternity past is God's foreknowledge and predestination of his people. Before the world was created, before his people were created, God entered into an, an, an intimacy with these whom he would create and whom he would redeem and whom he would bring to live in his own presence throughout all of a glorified eternity. In his foreknowledge of them, knowing them in the way that Adam knew his wife, that, that intimacy, that love in his love for them, he predestined, he settled beforehand that this particular number, this great number, would be conformed to the image of his son. Their calling, their justification, their glorification were all settled in advance. They cannot perish. Well, in the light of that wonderful affirmation in Romans 8, 29 and 30, we can understand how Romans 8 would conclude with the Apostle's emphatic assurance that nothing, absolutely nothing, will be able to separate believers from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That love is not conditioned by anything we do or fail to do. The love of God for His own is unconditional. It is free, it is gracious, and it is effectual. It accomplishes everything that it wants to do. The love of God is not a, a wish for the well-being of His people. It is a determination that He will do certain things for His people. He will do certain things in His people. And that love, having been set upon His own in a special electing way, cannot be ultimately thwarted. Let the devil do what he will, and the devil does do so much. He cannot, he will not prevail against our Savior, who is more than conqueror, our Savior having done everything that God the Father, in partnership with the Son and the Spirit, decreed in advance would take place. Now the Apostle Paul, a wise pastor, understood that God's children can be vulnerable to struggles with assurance. Some believers wonder at times whether they truly belong to the family of God. There may possibly be some here who, as we sang of glory land, had some unsettling thoughts within of, well, is that my destination? 
not that you don't believe in a glory land. It's not that you don't believe in a Savior who died to bring people to glory land. But some of God's dear children struggle at times with whether they'll make it to glory land. Have they, have they really believed in such a way that will bring them into the presence of a gracious Savior at last? Have they repented? Have they repented enough? Will their struggles, their ongoing struggles with unbelief, will it perhaps cut them off from being able to enter into all that God has promised to those that believe? The Apostles' pastoral concern to help those with such struggles seems to be a reason that he turns in Romans 9, 10, and 11 to address a painful and personal problem. For centuries, God had made great promises to the descendants of Abraham. God had expressed in a very explicit and in a special selective way his love for the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They alone, among all the nations of the earth, had received God's special revelation in the Word of God. To them alone was given the temple and its service. To them alone was given the covenants. And yet, in the midst of, of, of these incredible manifestations of God's promise and of God's love, so many of Abraham's descendants proved to not be Christians. God, God made promises. God, God said, I love you. And yet, unbelief did win the day with so many of the Hebrews people, of the Hebrews, of the Hebrew people. And that, of course, came to its ugly climax in the fact that when their, their own God-sent Messiah came into their midst, they crucified him. They did not, as a people, corporately welcome him. They did not bow before him and worship him. They did not treasure him in such a way as to give up everything to follow him. They rejected him, and they saw that he was nailed to a cross. Well, stated in that way, we can understand how real Christians might struggle with assurance as to whether God's promises and love will prove effectual in our lives. As I said before, might, might our unbelief prove greater than God's love? Might our sin nullify God's promises of salvation? Well, Paul was concerned to address uh, that issue practically, but also he was concerned to address another uh, very practical, experiential issue that believers face. He was addressing a personal concern that he himself experienced profoundly, like so many other Christians have through the ages. And that is this, how does the believer resist being unduly discouraged by, uh, at, at times almost paralyzed by, the fact that those whom we love most in this world are rejecting the Jesus that we have been brought to know is the only way to glory land. 
How, how do we live with a spouse? How do we live in our hearts with, with the spouse that they show no signs of conversion? How do we stand by the graveside of a child with there being no indication that that child had ever come to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior? We who have been brought to the conviction that it is through that Savior alone that peace with God is found. It is only through following Jesus that the gate to heaven is opened. Everything said about election in Romans 9 comes after Paul's transparent words in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Like perhaps some, perhaps many of you here today, Paul agonized over family members that were rejecting the only Savior. Uh, for him, the doctrine of election was not just a cerebral notion, you're in or you're out, you're on the list or you're not. Uh, for him, it was something he would turn to as he sought to cope with what was at times almost an overwhelming burden upon his spirit, that the people he cared about most on this planet were people that were stiff-arming the Savior that he so enthusiastically commended to them. The key to chapter 9 is stated in the opening words of verse 6, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. The Lord's gracious promises had not been ineffectual. God's special love had not been thwarted in what had unfolded in the history of Israel and in what had unfolded in the Apostle Paul's own experience as he traveled around the eastern Mediterranean world, going to city after city, beginning wherever possible with the synagogue where his own kinspeople, the Jews, were gathered. And as he again and again faced the message and in his own person being repudiated at times being, being stoned and being literally chased out of town as he faced this dynamic. What he's going to tell us here is that this is not an expression of the fact that what God has promised has in any way failed to come to pass. There is another explanation that we must recognize, that we must embrace. The truth is, it has always been God's purpose to distinguish between people in the outworking of His saving mercy. God has always promised to do for and in some what He has not promised to do for and in others. That was true throughout the history of Israel, going all the way back to their first father, Abraham, and that is still true throughout the whole world today. Now, the apostle gives four illustrations of this point in verses 6 through 23, the first three being drawn from Israel's history, the fourth being drawn from everyday life, and then in verses 24 and following, Paul shows that what he has presented is clearly rooted in Scripture 
citing key passages from Hosea and from Isaiah. Note with me, please, the four illustrations that the apostle draws our attention to here in the ninth chapter of Romans. First, the sons of Abraham. The sons of Abraham himself illustrate this principle of election. Paul reminds his readers, verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. He's obviously using a play on the word children. Uh, Not all of the children are real children. Not all of the natural offspring are children of the promise. Abraham fathered more than one child, notably Ishmael, but only Isaac was the son of promise. And thus when God showed mercy to Isaac in a way that he did not show mercy to Ishmael, God was not failing to fulfill his promise. God was, in fact, going to extraordinary lengths to fulfill his promise to Abraham. You'll remember that his son Isaac not only was the miraculous intervention of the Lord seen in Isaac coming to salvation, to the faith of his father, but the miraculous intervention of God was seen even in Isaac being conceived. You remember the story that Abraham and his wife Sarah were both uh, well past the normal age of childbearing. Sarah well past menopause. It took a miracle of God just for Isaac to be created, not only to carry on the line uh, of, of faith, Yes, God was committed to fulfilling his word, and he did fulfill his promise through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Illustration number two, the sons of Isaac. Romans 9, verses 11 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. As with Abraham, so with Isaac, it was not God's purpose, nor was it his promise that all of his offspring would be included in the the covenant. Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, twins, not only born of the same mother and the same father, but conceived in the same act of intimacy. And they, they come forth out of the womb, one right after the other. Esau comes out first. He's the firstborn. That was significant in that culture and throughout the Old Testament era. Jacob comes out second. But it was God's purpose that the older Esau would serve the younger. It was Jacob to whom, concerning whom, God had promised that the blessing would come. God chose that that blessing would not be upon Esau. Many Christians have tried to explain away election uh, through the years by saying that God uh, looks down the corridor you can imagine the corridor, uh, the walkway here before me, uh, if you can imagine that as a corridor of history, many Christians have tried to explain election by saying e- election in the Bible is, is God looking down the corridor of history 
and seen down the road all those who will choose of themselves to believe, and seeing that they of themselves will choose him, he then chooses them. Election is not really so much about what God does, it's about what man does. God, knowing all things, can see into the future, that's true. He can see, he does see, who will believe tomorrow, who will believe next week, who will believe ten years from now if the Lord Jesus has not returned. And seeing that, seeing who would choose him, he then chooses them. But this passage really demolishes that idea. The stress here is, though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That was the determination that the Lord made before the guys had done anything. Admittedly, this statement in the Holy Bible, Esau I hated, is startling. We can't admit uh, in humility that there are things in the Bible that we do find startling. Our culture has labored very hard to persuade us that true love is accepting everyone equally without distinction And our culture has likewise labored very hard to persuade us that hate is about the worst possible thing anyone can be identified with. If you don't affirm everything that the world affirms, if you don't endorse everything that our culture uh, endorses, if you don't come along and, and say that's not only tolerable but that's to be celebrated, our culture is ready to assign the tag hate to you. Oh, you're among those people that hate and it puts us into a a corner as Christians and how we deal with others. Well, here we have the Word of God speaking of our God having hated Esau. It's startling, but there is such a thing as a holy hatred. There is such a thing as a hatred that expresses moral virtue and integrity. God was, in fact, against Esau. He had a genuine dislike of Esau. But that disposition reflected the reality that Esau was a wicked man. He was a greedy man. He was a sensual, uncontrolled man. He was a vengeful man, murderous. He was impenitent. Jacob himself was long a scoundrel. Again, the stress of the passage is not that, well, Jacob was a better better guy than Esau. Jacob was deceitful. Jacob was a thief. Jacob was a manipulator. But God chose to graciously intervene in Jacob's life, giving him a new heart and a new name, Israel. God chose not to similarly intervene in Esau's life. And that decision was made by the Lord before the twins were even born. Illustration number three, Israel and Pharaoh. Israel and Pharaoh. With great mercy and fulfillment of a sacred promise, the Lord rescued the enslaved Israelites from bondage in Egypt. Pharaoh, the ruthless king of Egypt, was chosen by God, not as an object of mercy, but rather 
as an object of hardening. Through the obstinacy of the monarch, God displayed the awesome power of his wrath and judgment. Plague after plague came down upon the arrogant ruler, culminating in the miraculous destruction of the tyrant's army in the Red Sea. Was it unjust for God to thus harden that king's heart? Well, we're told repeatedly, as many of you know, in the Exodus account, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and that's true. He, he chose again and again to stiffen his neck against God. God brought his word to Pharaoh. God brought deeds to bear upon Pharaoh, giving him space to repent, encouraging him to repent. But Pharaoh would have nothing to do with it. He was an obstinate, stubborn sinner. God did not owe Pharaoh a softening of his heart. He was a mass murderer. The Lord chose to give him over to his sin, withholding that mercy and that grace that alone can change the rebel's heart. God does not owe any sinner mercy. We're not entitled to God's grace. And certainly God did not owe Israel mercy. Like Pharaoh, they deserve judgment. But he has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he wills. It was his sovereign purpose to show mercy to his chosen people, the Israelites, hardening Pharaoh, whereby he and his entire nation uh, came to suffer the righteous judgments of God. The passage tells us in verse 16, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And can it be stated any more clearly than that? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. Illustration number 4. It's drawn from everyday ancient life. A potter making some vessels for fancy use and others for dirty work. Uh, the potter would take from the one mass of clay, he would work it on his will, and there would be uh, some of that clay that would be molded into vessels that were going to be used uh, at a fine reception among the no nobility of the community. And he would take from that same mass uh, clay that would be molded into vessels that would be used as chamber pots in the homes of those throughout the community. Uh, some vessels made unto honorable use, some vessels made unto dishonorable use. And the Apostle Paul uses that illustration in order to make this practical point. Would the clay say to the potter, why have you made me like this? No, the potter has the right to make out of the same lump of clay one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use. How much more is the larger point of the apostle? How much more does God have the right to take from the one massive lump of fallen humanity, some that will be fitted for mercy and for grace, while others are left to be uh, justly uh, condemned in their unbelief and in their impenitence, fitted to be vessels of wrath. All of us deserve wrath. There's none righteous according to the Bible. No, not one. 
That was true of every single one of us here at some point in our lives, right? Uh, that, that spoke to our story. There are none righteous, no, not one. There are none who understands. That's true of each and every one of us who are here this morning. There was a time, we may not be able to remember it if we were converted in early childhood, but there was a time where we did not understand the things of Christ. There is none who seeks after God. No, not one. I'm quoting the Old Testament as it's presented in Romans 3, 10 through 12. Again, this, this is our story. There was a time where you and I, I'm speaking now to those who are Christians, now there was a time where we did not seek after God. There was a time where Christ was not precious. There was no sense of Christ being needed. There was no sense of Christ's word being valued. There was no delight in Christ's people. There was no commitment to Christ's worship. That's my story. That's your story. We who have been brought to faith in Christ have not come because God saw in us something that distinguished us from others, something that would move him to say, you're the kind of person that I would like on my team. You're the kind of person that would enhance my family's appearance. Everything about this religious hypocrite during my years of adolescence would have compelled God to say, you would be the last person that I want on my team. You think yourself a Christian. You pride yourself in the things you don't do. You think that going to church means the way to heaven is waiting for you. And I was blind and I was engulfed in sins of the heart. There was every reason for God to say, Johnston, just go ahead. Play church softball, sing in the church choir, be a deacon, die and go to hell exactly as your hypocritical, self-righteous ways deserve. When I first heard of the doctrine of election, I didn't study it. I didn't turn to trusted authors to read. I just rejected it. I just I was a young Christian and I just thought this cannot be true. This this is unfair. That's the way it struck me. That was my first instinct. It's not fair that this can't be true. And I was content just to leave it there. But God had saved me and God had given me a heart for the Bible. And it was especially as I began to read and think about the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. I'd never read through the Old Testament in my life. And as I began to see the majesty of God as the prophet Isaiah presented him, and this God who knows the future before it happens because he has decreed what will unfold in the future, I, I was gradually brought to a humbler mind. And it actually resonated entirely with my experience because growing up in a Southern Baptist Church, this is not a sling against Southern Baptist churches. It could have been any kind of church, but I grew up in a big Southern Baptist church outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and I did what was the typical thing in that culture at that time. As a child, I, I walked the aisle, I, I, I prayed the prayer, I was baptized, I was added to the church, and I did the youth retreats, and I did training union, and I did Wednesday night supper, and I did church basketball, church softball. I, my family was in to that kind of thing. But if you had gotten very close to me at all, it wouldn't have been hard for you to discern that I had no heart for Jesus. (coughs) 
So the doctrines of grace would end up resonating with me because when God saved me, it had nothing to do with my searching for God because I was sure I had God. I was confident I was in. I had my ticket. But God brought me low through some ways in order to get my attention. And God began to deal with me. And it would only be a couple of years later that I began to recognize what had happened was that I had been converted. And why was I made to hear his voice and to enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and would rather starve than come. God has chosen to take out of the mass of fallen humanity some that he will fit for grace and mercy, leaving many others to themselves. I close with some applications. And I've already given you one. Uh, this, this doctrine should, should move us to, to magnify the grace of God in our own experience for Christians. It should deepen in our souls a sense of the wonder of what God has done. It should enable us to enter into a classic hymn like Amazing Grace in a, in a profounder way. When we say, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved.'" How, how precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. We should, it's not necessarily true that Reformed people, that Calvinistic people are more humble or even more grateful than those who don't understand what's been nicknamed the doctrines of grace. I wish it could be said. That, that good doctrine always produces deeper Christian character. But good doctrine ought to produce deeper Christian character. And no one should be more profoundly aware of the wonder of what God has done than those who understand the truth that is being set forth in this passage and throughout the whole Bible. That salvation at the end of the day is not decisively a function of what I saw, of what I chose. But that salvation decisively is an expression of what our gracious, sovereign God has done. He rescued me. The rope of the gospel was let down into the pit, but I was dead, I was dry bones, utterly unable to hear the cries of those saying, take the rope, utterly unable to reach out and grasp the rope that people were begging me to grasp. God spoke and said, bones live. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. Now rose went forth and followed thee.
It's what God did. This truth should impress that upon believers. God's sovereign election, secondly, should strengthen our conviction that God's word of promise will not and cannot fail. God, God is going to reach his own. His promise is not only an expression of his integrity, that he's a faithful person that can be utterly relied upon, but his promises are an expression of things that he decreed in eternity past. He settled. Everything that he has purposed to do will unfold. Everything that he has promised to his people must come to fruition. That thief on the cross, he must hear the gospel and something must happen in his soul to rescue him before he goes over the brink into eternity. The Apostle Paul, preaching this doctrine of election, understood well where he was when the Word of God was made effectual to his soul. He was on his way to arrest Christians. He had in his memory Christians like Stephen, who had been stoned to death while he watched, thinking this is a good and right thing. This kind of thing ought to happen more. These Christians ought to be put to death. God's promise will not fail. God will reach, rescue, restore each and every one of his own. Not a single sheep will be lost. Three, God's sovereign election preserves believers from undue discouragement over the lost condition of loved ones. It preserves believers from undue, I stress that adjective, undue discouragement over the lost condition of loved ones. If we love, we will hurt, right? And there's no escape from a hurting life if God enables us to know something of loving people. And this was exactly the way it was with Jesus. It was Jesus who wailed over Jerusalem. He, the sovereign Lord, looked down upon a people, his own people, who had repudiated his message and rejected his own purpose. And his response was not a stoical, well, you win some, you lose some. It, it broke his heart. He knew what was at stake. He understood hell. He understood the wonder of knowing God and what his own family were missing out on. He understood the brokenness of life and how it's intensified when we stiff-arm God and we reject the counsel of his word and insist on going our own way. Jesus knew better than anyone what that brings on people. And how it splashes onto others. And he, he wept over Jerusalem. He looked out on the cities where most of his miracles had been done, we're told in Matthew 11. The people who were most honored with displays of his grace, his kindness, his power. He warned them that if Sodom had had as much privilege as they had had, Sodom would still be standing. 
Sodom would have responded better than they had responded. But in the midst of his heartache, he said, Father, I praise thee. Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent, and didst reveal them unto babes, for thus it was well pleasing in thy sight. And again, that wasn't said robotically, that wasn't said just in a cerebral way. It was something that kept him from paralysis in the midst of being on mission. And humanly speaking, it just looked like he was failing, failing, failing. And he didn't criticize his father. He admired his father. Thus, it was well-pleasing in your sight to hide me from the wise and intelligent, to reveal me unto babes. He was able to worship. It gave him an anchor. And the Apostle Paul's expressing the same thing here. He speaks of unceasing grief. You know how hard it is to live with unceasing grief? Some of you are forced to know it. I'm sure in a crowd this size. Some of you know what it is to always have that knife under your ribs. And this, this helped Paul to hang on. God knows what he's doing. As the currents just again and again sought to pull him away, he kept clinging to this, God, my God reigns. And he is more than conqueror. And he will win. It was a lifeline for Paul. Finally, God's sovereign election of his people, let us always remember, is in Christ. Let us never, never allow the truth of election to get separated from the centrality of Jesus Christ. Another key passage on election, Ephesians 1, verse 4, makes it clear that God chose his people in Christ before the foundation of the world. He already had set his heart upon the people, and he had done so recognizing that this great multitude drawn from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, that this great multitude will come to be joined to my son in vital union, and I choose them in him unto life everlasting, to be adopted into my family, and to be conformed perfectly at last to my holiness and to my blamelessness. Where did Paul learn to weep over lost sinners? Well, he learned it primarily from Jesus. Where, where, where would Paul conceive of the thought that I, I would be willing to go to hell to be accursed if I knew that there was a way whereby my doing so would ensure the salvation of my family. Are there parents here who can relate to that feeling on some level? At least the sense that you'd willingly give up an arm, you'd give up a leg. I'm a grandparent now. We're expecting number eight. 
ask, what would I give for my grandchildren? If, if it brought a guarantee, they will all go to heaven. 10,000 years from now, they'll be there. 100,000 years from now, they'll be there. A million years from now, they will be there. What would I give for a guarantee that my grandchildren will all be rescued from hell and they'll live in the presence of Jesus forever? Paul said, I, I, I would be accursed. But where did he learn that from? There was one in heaven who said, I will be accursed. I will go to hell and to the experience of it for a time. I will leave the safety of heaven. I will leave this place where everybody loves me, everybody understands me, everybody's dialed in to how great and glorious and wonderful I am. I will leave and I will go into the ravages and the ugliness of a fallen world. And I will, yes, I will be misunderstood and I will be slandered and I will even be hated by my own family. And they will whip me and they will spit on me and they will jeer at me and they will laugh as I am nailed to a Roman cross. And Father, I'm willing for you to forsake me. I will be accursed if by that they will live. And this is our salvation, y'all. That's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't just speak of a willingness to be accursed. He experienced being accursed. And he did it so that a self-righteous, sensual, defiled hypocrite like myself could be delivered from wrath that I so emphatically deserve and could enter into the Son's place in heaven, vitally joined in, partaker of everything that Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, has entered into. This is our salvation. Do you know this Jesus? Have you determined you will follow this Jesus? Are you asking him, save me. Look down upon dry bones and summon them to live. God, I can't do this. Do this for me. Rescue me. I'm happy to tell you that the message of the gospel is not, are you one of the elect? The message of the gospel is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray together.